Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's program... Zika virus is public health emergency of international concern because it's been shown that it is now clearly associated with microcephaly and other abnormalities. The chairman of the World Health Organization's Emergency Committee on Zika tells us what we know and what we don't know about the virus. What we do know is that it's pretty much spread throughout Latin America and into southern United States. And feed a fever, starve a cold, or is it the other way around? We explore the scientific support for an old wives' tale. I wouldn't go and start hogging on the ice cream when you've got a bacterial infection. More about that a little later. First, recognize this? You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who welcomes the sound of a mosquito drawing near. But, annoyance aside, they're the vectors of all manner of maladies that plague human populations worldwide. So is the answer to make them extinct? Recent developments in genetic engineering mean that question could be moving beyond the hypothetical. Our healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder, joins us now to delve into the arguments. Hi, Natasha. Hi. First off, there have already been sort of genetic efforts to try to reduce mosquito populations before, right? Yeah. In Brazil, scientists have been modifying the male mosquito, Aedes aegypti, to make it sterile. And the idea being that when these mate, you'll reduce the population of mosquitoes carrying Zika. But you've been looking into something that is a little more advanced an idea than that, called gene drives. What are they? What this would allow you to do is create a gene with a deleterious effect or with a negative effect on on the mosquito, and it would drive itself through the population. People have called these gene bombs, and the genes would copy themselves inside a genome in a way that means they would always be inherited. So if you modify one mosquito and you give it one of these gene drives, all its offspring would have this gene. And traditionally, you'd expect offspring to uh, inherit this 50% of the time. And they're quite controversial because, you know, once you release this genetic modification, it's kind of out there and people worry about unintended consequences or what if you change your mind and is it right just to eradicate a species completely? Well, and it sounds as if it wouldn't at all be limited just to mosquitoes. I mean, we could we could attack other disease vectors as well, right? Right. I mean, in theory, you could create a gene drive in any species. And, and that's the sort of thing that, that worries people. And you could use them for good and for, for harm as well. I mean, in the same way that you could engineer a gene drive to wipe out a species of mosquito or another vector, you could also engineer a gene drive, in theory at least, so that mosquitoes were much more likely to carry infectious diseases and things like that. Right. So a, a new front then in biological warfare, I suppose. Potentially, yeah. And yes. there's the ethical question of should we be deciding whether or not to make some species extinct? We've had this debate in the past and the conclusion has been Yes, absolutely. You can wipe out a species if it is very harmful to mankind because 
what are you going to do? Are you going to let people die and suffer from smallpox because you have some sort of attachment to not eradicating species? No, of course not. That argument in itself has sort of been won. I guess what's tricky about gene drives is that it raises the prospect that this is now a lot easier than it was. And when you choose to eradicate a species, and there is a very big effort underway to eradicate the mosquito that carries malaria. And and this week, we just heard that that's happened in Sri Lanka. It takes a lot of effort and it takes years and you have to spend a lot of money and the countries involved have to all agree that that's a good idea. And of course they do. You know, with gene drives, the potential is, is that you could be in one country and say, well, we're going to release this because we think it's a good idea that this species, this mosquito doesn't exist. And then it would spread to lots of other countries. Now, I don't think anyone is going to seriously object to eradicating the malaria mosquito using gene drives. The problem is, is that if you don't do this properly the first time you do it, then you kind of open a sort of Pandora's box. You create a situation where other countries, other individuals, other other groups may feel empowered just to make these decisions about which species to sort of engineer off the planet. And that's a kind of much more frightening prospect. You know, you really need to know quite a lot about interactions uh, between species before you just decide to go and wipe them out with a clever biotech technique that you dreamt up in the laboratory. Luckily, there are only a few species of mosquito that, that carry the diseases that really bother humans. And so it's quite an easy decision to eliminate them. Would we eliminate all mosquitoes? I think that's a harder question to answer. Most of us would be like, yay, no more mosquitoes. But, you know, that mosquito that just had its lunch off your arm is then going to be eaten by a swallow or a bird or something like that. And, and those are the sort of things you need to think about. So I guess you're arguing then that the one of the steps as we sit here at the sort of the very beginning of this journey is transnational agreements about what's going to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see that we can proceed with this technology and deploy it without having a mechanism for allowing countries to consent. And that's difficult to argue with the malaria mosquito, because just imagine we do figure out how to knock down the population of malarial mosquitoes within a couple of years. You know, you've got to think there are 400,000 people being killed by malaria every year. Most of them are children under the age of five. And every year you fail to get everyone to agree, you're losing all those people and hundreds of millions are catching malaria. So the technology may be available sooner than we have the broader societal acceptance. But one of the things that might give people less pause, I suppose, is if there were a kind of reverse button, right? If we can engineer these things to drive themselves through populations, then then how to undo any damage that may result? If we can be super clever about this and if we can create a situation where it's not a sort of, you know, you release your bucket of mosquitoes and that's it and you have your stop button or whatever. Yeah, obviously, then that changes the question somewhat. Let's hope there are people who are cleverer than us out there who can figure out how to deploy the technology in a way that doesn't open the door to all sorts of other scarier future scenarios. Natasha, thanks very much. Would you like to see the mosquito gone? Is it right for us to start getting rid of unwanted species? Tell us by emailing radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. While you're mulling it over, we'll give you a little background into a mosquito-borne pathogen that's been grabbing all the headlines of late. Zika. Mosquitoes are one way to control it, and the other, and the most important, is personal understanding. People must understand how to prevent themselves from being bitten by mosquitoes. That's David Heyman of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's also chair of the World Health Organization's Emergency Committee on Zika Virus. 
Slaveya Chankova, our data journalist covering science and healthcare issues, spoke to him this week to find out more about the virus. Zika has captured the world's attention uh, with its proliferation in Brazil. But what is the global situation now? How many countries have it? Well, it's not clear exactly how many countries have Zika because it's very difficult to diagnose this disease. What we do know is that it's pretty much spread throughout Latin America and into southern United States. This is the virus that comes from Brazil that came in from the Pacific. Then there are other viruses. There's an African Zika virus, and there's another Asian virus, which has circulated in Asia and Africa for many years, and that causes outbreaks periodically as well. Is Zika expected to keep spreading to other countries? Is it known whether it will keep marching across the world? Well, it's not known. In fact, the strain that was found recently in Singapore is a strain which has been circulating in Asia for many years. It's not the strain that came from Brazil. So initially it was thought that it was the Brazilian strain, but genetically it wasn't. But earlier in the year, Singapore did have an imported case of Zika, which came in from Latin America. So you can see that these viruses, there are three different types, at least three different what we call lineages, and they're occurring throughout the world. A lot has been learned about Zika in, in just under a year since doctors in Brazil noticed a rise in microcephaly and Zika was the expected cause. But what do we still not know about the virus? Well, there's much that we don't know about the virus. We know that the virus that has been first seen in Brazil causing microcephaly is a virus which causes risks to fetus. And we know that this virus can be transmitted by mosquitoes and also by sexual transmission. We don't know, however, how long a person could be infected after their initial infection to spread it sexually. And there are many, many other diseases we don't know about transmission. In addition, there's much we don't understand about what this virus does to the human, whether it's to the fetus or to an adult. There's much laboratory work, but there's not a lot of work in humans to understand what is called the natural history of the disease, how it manifests itself. We know, for example, in fetuses that there can be microcephaly. We know that there can be Guillain-Barre syndrome in people who are infected. That's Guillain-Barre syndrome, a nasty condition in which the immune system starts attacking tissue in the peripheral nervous system. Tingling can turn into muscle weakness and problems walking, and in some rare cases, it can become life-threatening. Back to what we don't know. But we don't know other possible disease that occurs from this virus as well, or long-term residual effects. So there's much that's not known. There is much that's known. And what hopefully will happen is that eventually there will be a vaccine which is effective in preventing infection. And and what about the health effects uh, that are already evident? How common are birth defects uh, caused by Zika when the mother is infected in pregnancy, for example? Well, at present, it's thought that this is very low compared to another virus in the past, which caused many, many fetal abnormalities, and that was German measles or rubella. Back before there was a vaccine for rubella, if a pregnant woman was infected, it was thought that there was an 80 or 90 percent chance that her fetus would be affected and that the child would be handicapped. However, this is much, much less for Zika. It's thought to be even less than 10 percent and possibly less than 2 percent. But again, it's very early in understanding about this virus. Thanks to Professor Heyman there and, of course, to Silvea. Last week, we talked about the renaissance wood was undergoing as a viable environmental and economical building material. We discussed, you responded. Ian Salisbury wrote to us on Facebook saying, I think we should still forego the thatch. 
Ian, I have to say you, you might be right. It's, uh, it's not the most long-lasting of building materials and poses a particular fire risk. Now, back to all things infectious. Everyone knows you feed a cold, starve a fever, or is it the other way around? This old wives' tale has been credited to the writings of Geoffrey Chaucer, though the evidence for that is scant, as well as the, as well as the 16th century dictionary scribe John Withels, who said fasting is a great remedy of fever. While historians have deliberated, medicine has already made a decision that it's always bad to deny food to the unwell. But they could be wrong. Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, has been looking into the issue. Matt, first off, I can, I can never remember which way around it is, feed a cold, starve a fever, what, what, what have you. Are you. You're familiar with the advice, I presume? Well, I mean, seriously, you ask different grandparents and they'll give you different advice. There's absolutely no consensus on this. Everyone's got a different opinion. So uh, these researchers looked at animals. And the thing is, we know for a fact that when animals get ill, they tend to veer away from food. We do the same thing. When you get really sick, you tend to not want to eat. And that's your body taking some action all on its own. And there's some sort of consensus arising in the biology community, if not medical community, that that force-feeding animals when ill has a definitive effect. So yeah, this research started with a couple of researchers who noticed that with insects with bacterial infections, if you force-fed the insects' food, the insects tended to die, and when you kept them away from food, they tended to survive. Similar work got done with fruit flies, but it was unclear because sometimes feeding helped and sometimes it didn't. And these researchers noticed, well, wait a minute, hold on, different research groups are working with different types of diseases. Do some diseases benefit from starvation and some not? And so they really got looking into that, and they set up this experiment with your favorite animals, Jason, mice, to see how they responded to different infections with different feeding regimes. So we're going to get back to some tortured mice in some way, no doubt, because we often do. Okay, so what, what did they test and how? So they worked with groups of mice that were either infected with listeria, which is a bacterium that tends to cause food poisoning. Uh, similarly, they worked with a mouse version of influenza. And they looked at what happened when they force-fed these mice something similar to rodent chow, or if they force-fed them saline solution. And the results that they got with these two groups of animals was just totally different. If you force-feed a mouse that's suffering from a bacterial disease, the mouse does really badly. In fact, all of the mice die in the group. But if you don't give them the food, if you just force-feed them saline solution, which is you know, bereft of nutrients, roughly half of the mice survived the disease. So that was pretty staggering all on its own. And then when they looked at the virus population, they found very much the reverse. Mice that were force-fed tended to do rather well, whereas mice that were not force-fed tended to do rather badly. And is there any indication as to what's actually going on here, what's going on with the cells, with the, with the biology itself? So when they started looking at the cellular level, they noticed specifically when they ran subsets with just glucose, glucose appears to be the critical factor here. If you force feed glucose, it, it has this major effect on bacteria or viral populations. They noticed that their cells behaved very differently. And the key, this will take you right back to grade level microbiology, Jason, is the endoplasmic reticulum. Does that ring any bells? I remember that. <laughs> it's the ripply one, right? Yeah, it's the ripply one with the ribosomes all over it. When the endoplasmic reticulum detects that there's a viral infection and it notices that its parent cell is not getting enough glucose to fuel a response to the virus, the endoplasmic reticulum begins programmed cell death. It effectively sets up cellular suicide to blow up the cell before the virus can take control of the DNA in the cell and set up a virus factory. And providing glucose 
in a virus situation allows the endoplasmic reticulum to say, okay, we got enough glucose to fight this infection. We're going to be okay. No need to hit the self-destruct button. And what about on the bacterial side? When you provide a whole bunch of glucose to cells that are suffering from these bacterial infections, this research group noticed that the cells uh, start creating a lot of damaging free radicals, oxygenated material like hydroxides that cause a lot of cellular damage and actually make things far worse for a cell that's already stressed with an infection. And, of course, I'm, I'm honor-bound to return to the question we started with, which is, okay, so what, what should I do with a fever? What should I do with a cold? Is, is that clear yet? The mice are certainly telling us when you've got a viral infection, glucose is essential. Don't deny glucose. And if you've got a bacterial infection, glucose is really quite harmful. Try to deny the glucose and provide fatty acids instead because that's what the cells need. So fruits for a viral infection, what's my fatty acid food of choice? I mean, I wouldn't go and start hogging on the ice cream when you've got a bacterial infection because that's just loaded with glucose. But seriously, this is an initial mouse study we still need to see work being done in humans and getting solid evidence before we can start making health recommendations to people based upon these results. I will moderate my ice cream intake both when healthy and when ill. Thanks very much for that, Matt. Hey, no problem, Jason. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. If you liked it, why not help it go viral by sharing it online? To read Natasha's leader on gene drives and Matt's piece on starving bacteria, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or find it online. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.